My heart is full today for numerous reasons. I promised the confirmands I'd be speaking to them today, and so I shall. But you will notice I'm also speaking to mothers and to fathers and to families. I'm also speaking to the church at large. And I'm speaking to general, general conference delegates of the United Methodist Church who will begin together this Monday to make the rules and the changes in our rules that we need in our book of discipline that has guided United Methodists since John Wesley's days in the 1700s. They have a hard task ahead of them. I need to speak about that because in 1978 I was convinced that the Lord was calling me into Methodist ministry despite all I could do to change his mind. And so I went back to college. I went back to seminary. And in 1986, the next round of bishops and conference leaders laid their hands upon my head and ordained me an elder in the United Methodist Church. And so I represent the United Methodist Church in some capacity wherever I am. But not just in the church building. I can represent Christ and the United Methodist Church anywhere I go by virtue of their ordination of my life. I took that very seriously then in those eight years it took to finish the process, and I take it very seriously today. But you know, it was God who called me and the United Methodist Church who recognized it. My first calling is always to my Lord Jesus Christ, to the love he has shown me and given me through the years, and to God the Father who placed that love in him as he went to the cross and even before the foundations of the world. My heart is breaking because after all these years of serving in the United Methodist Church, I serve within a church that is struggling for a sense of unity unlike it ever has before. At times past, when people called Methodists have been joined together, historically they have separated over certain doctrinal issues. And I'm going to speak about that this morning. And I don't know what's going to happen at the church this time at General Conference in terms of what they will decide. I do not really believe that Huge decisions will be made. I could be surprised. But I do believe that we're on a course that very likely may end up in some kind of separation or at least in a very major revision of the way we understand the people called United Methodists. When that time comes, I will be very sad about that. I love being united because I believe in unity. And I believe that denominations have been given to us for the purpose of allowing us to express our own individual understandings of faith within a community of faith where we share, most of all, pretty much the same kind of things. We're never organized the same. We're never doctrinally pure, despite those who try to make their churches doctrinally pure, because we are all individual people with individual sin and individual places in our life of salvation. And that will always be so. But in order to really be one with the Father and with the Son and to serve together as the body of Christ to be united, we have to split up into larger groups, don't we? I have once said to several of my friends and cohorts, why don't you, you're not really a United Methodist. And then they proceed to tell me that I should become whatever the church they went to. Oftentimes in Texas, it's been the Baptist church. They said, you don't preach like a Methodist. And I said, you've just been listening to the wrong Methodists. I love my Baptist brothers and sisters, but I'm not a Baptist. Doctrinally, there are places where we just would not get along. You wouldn't like me nearly so much if I were your pastor. You like me at funerals, where it's all very easy to speak about things that unite us, right? 
We all want to go to heaven. We're all looking for that little rowboat to take us there when the time comes, and not many of us are applying today. All right? So when you go to a funeral to preach, everybody thinks you're a grand preacher because you, they've been reminded that death is not final. That's something that unites Christians together. If you don't have that belief, then we're not Christians. Today, these six young people have made a declaration that they believe in the Jesus who made this prayer in the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter. They've announced their intention to follow him, and they understand how much. In relation to my hand in the floor, if that's 100%, I'm not going down on my knees to talk about how much they understand today. You're so young, you're so lucky to be so young. You're so wise, and you're so lucky to know how, how little you know. Now, you may not believe that you know little, but trust me, I have lived about four times longer, five times plus longer than any of you. And I was smarter than any of you when I were your age. <laughs> Unfortunately, you grow up and realize you weren't nearly as smart as you thought. But that's all right because, you know, that's natural and that's normal. You know what's going to happen along that way? I know it's hard for you to believe as sweet as you are today. But someday... You're going to walk into your family's dinner table when they're all gathered ready to eat, and you're going to make a proclamation about something of which you are sure. And your mother is going to look at your father and say, who is that child? And the father's going to go, I do not know who that child is. And you're going to look at them and go, I don't know how I'm in this family. And if you're a young lady, you're liable to stomp out of the room. And if you're a young man, your ears may be red, your nose glowing, and you may really want to say something because you're feeling really strong. But fortunately, God will give you the wisdom to keep your mouth shut, probably. But as you get older, that urge will get satisfied as you move out into your own world and your own adult. And then you will probably begin to realize how many times your parents said so many important things to you. And you were not really focused in. You were not really believing them because your friends believe something different. Because your world told you something different. The culture of every nation is important. Of every community is important. And the culture of every congregation is important. There is nothing more important to fellowship with other human beings than the word unity. Because unity encompasses two words in this passage that are very, very important to the idea of the possibility of us being one. Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about doctrinal purity. I'm not talking about that unity. I believe that God knew from the earliest of times there would not be one church where everybody across the world had the same doctrine. I'm quite sure that the Lord did not intend to organize the church in every place in the same way. Even in the early churches listed in Paul's letters, churches are formed in very different ways. I, it's pretty funny when people talk about, well, you know, I want to go to the New Testament church, the one that's in the Bible. And I, I usually say, which one? The one at Corinth or the one at Philippi? Would you prefer the one in the Ephesian church, wherever that might have been? Or would you, what church would you like? Because, you see, they were all organized differently even then. They even used different names for pastors. They did things differently because of their cultures and their understanding of the Scriptures. And we continue to do it today. I'm not talking about a unity that's created by politics, by a vote, and, it's, and it happens. I remember once a vote in a congregation where I was pastor. It was over a particular 
housing situation for the clergy. The long and the short of it was, and this is very short, there was a family that wanted to give a really, really nice house to the church for the parsonage where Sally and I would have lived blissfully with our two children. It was on Sweet Street. Not really the name of the street, but a really, really nice street and a really, really large house, a larger house than we've ever lived in since. They wanted to give it to the congregation. As you can imagine, when word went around that that was the case, some of the congregation said, oh, no, we're not doing that. That's where the rich folks live, and our pastor's not living there. And I thought, why? Some of you live there. Uh, What's the problem? The junior associate was really for it, who was new at our church, because he was going to get the house we were leaving that was the current parsonage, and it was a lot better than anything he could rent. There was a congregational gathering. We were in the basement, and it was packed. It was about the first six months I was at that congregation, and things got heated right in the start. You know what I had to tell them? I had to stop the meeting. I had to look at several of them and say, we're not going to act this way toward one another. We're church members, and we're in the same room, and we're going to act and treat each other with respect. Everybody will be able to have their say if we're here till midnight or later, but we're not going to talk over one another or while someone else is talking. I let it get silent, just like you are now. You say, you really did that? I really did. I've never been very wise, but I've also never been very afraid of the church congregation. Sometimes they need to be spoken to straightly. We started in, and what do you know? Dear sweet little lady on the front started in again, and I stopped, and I walked right over in front of her and just looked at her, as I recall, until she quit talking. And then I went back to the person who was speaking. They got pretty good at that point. We didn't applause when somebody said something that we agreed. We just discussed the issue. In the end, before they voted, because it was coming to a vote, and it was obvious it was going to be tough, I made a statement. I said, we don't need the new parsonage because if you vote yes for this amendment, even though it's a great house and a great financial benefit to the church, it will not be good for the unity in this congregation. So I expect you to vote it down. And now I'm calling for the vote. And they voted. It lost by about four votes, the acceptance of that gift. That would have been a large gift to the church. And after as older as people began to file out and they left, the new young associate pastor cornered me. Filled with wisdom from above, he thought. He'd come from the insurance world where he was a salesperson. And he walked up to me and he stood up in all his full six-foot-two, dark-haired, slender build. And he said, you could have won that vote. And I looked at him and I smiled and I said, sure. I knew I could have won the vote. But I would have been the one needing to be voting. It would not have been good to have voted yes and been in constant conflict. It would have destroyed the unity of the church. But you could have won it. And I looked at him, I said, you'll get a house to live in. Don't worry about it. Quit worrying about where you're going to live and worry about this congregation. We have things to do far more important than get another house, both my family and yours. Knock it off. He shook his head, and he thought, this guy doesn't know which end is up. I support him in his candidacy for being a United Methodist pastor. He got along the way. He got some church appointments. About the second one, they were calling me saying, what's the matter with this guy? I said, exactly what I told you from the beginning. 
is still a problem. And so in the end, I called him back. I said, you need to give up seeking ordination because you're never going to be ordained. And he said, why? I said, because you will not listen to anybody but yourself. There's not room for that arrogance in the leadership of the church. He said, well, I could be ordained anyway. I said, actually, you still answer to the district board of ministry in this place, and we have to recommend you every year, and I'm the chair of that committee. <laughs> and he says, you're telling me I have to resign. I said, I'm not telling you have to, but if you don't, you will be voted down because I'm going to have to tell what's gone on in every place you've served because you will destroy the unity of the church. He didn't, and he didn't, and I'm not for sure what he's doing today. I'm not going to call his name. He could be, sh- I don't think he's in here. I don't think he frequents too many Methodist churches anymore, but that's okay because, you see, it was clear that he wasn't ready for that mantle of leadership. He wore it like a badge, giving him power to do whatever he wanted to do. He didn't maintain a sense of unity. Now, I could tell you that I could go to general conference and they'd give me the mic and the bishop's staff and power to have one vote for everything. I could fix all the problems in the Methodist church. But if I did, here's what would happen. It would be an artificial unity and nothing would really be solved except making me happy for a short time. Unity cannot be artificial It has to find its source at the same place that the unity existed between the Father and the Son, and that is one born out of two things. It's a unity born out of glory. When Jesus said, I have given you the glory you've given me, he was referring to the cross that was to come. Unity with God implies a self-giving, sacrificial stance toward life. It implies counting others more important than yourself. It means giving your life for others. And if that is not a part of the unity you have in a congregation, then you really don't have unity. If that is not the kind of unity you have in a church staff, then you really do not have unity. If that's the kind of unity that you do not have in an individual congregation or in these United Methodist churches or in any church in any place in this whole world, then you do not have biblical unity unless it has one of its founding pillars, that sense of reciprocal, self-giving love that takes you to the cross. That's what Christianity is about. Anytime that you experience things that are not in unity, it should tear your heart up. Today, my heart is broken on several levels for reasons I don't need to enumerate. After all these years of serving in the church, it breaks my heart that I may be some kind of Methodist other than United at some point in my life. If I work long enough, I'm convinced I will. That won't change the fact that I'm one with the Father But it will mean that once again a church has had to split because they got too particular with doctrinal purity or because some people would not stay with what's essential. They would not be sacrificial, one part of the church for another part. They would not love them with a mutual kind of love. It was not exchanged. Now let's go to Mother's Day. The only way these youth grow up to be healthy and strong is when a mother and father are one. To the extent that you're not in unity in your household, to the extent that you allow these young, beautiful youth 
to divide you, you're doing damage to them. Anytime you go, or you go, or you go, to mom or dad and ask for something, maybe to go to someone's house, maybe to take up some kind of sport, maybe to do something about school, and that parent tells you no, you're surrounded by the urge to slowly back out of that question and say, okay. Speaking to mom that time. Hi, Dad. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm just home from work. What's up? Well, I wanted to go to so-and-so's and spend the night. Is that okay? Nothing else going on? No, no schoolwork, Dad. Nothing going on. Okay. Take off. Go pack your stuff. Thanks, Dad. You're the greatest. The trouble is then Dad walks farther into the house, and there's Mom. And she's just watched you going to pack your bags to go to the neighbor she told you you couldn't go to. So she walks up to Dad, and she says, what did you do? And Dad says, he just has to go stay at so-and-so's house. I says, hey, he didn't have any homework. I'd already told him no. Here's a bad moment for you. It's a bad moment. Mom and Dad together walk into your room where you're packing. You've already told your friend you're coming. And they walk up to you and they say, why did you ask the other parent when one parent had already told you no? One of our no's is no from both of us. One of our yeses is always yes twice. Unpack your stuff. Get on your phone. Call your friend and tell them what happened. That's a second no. Couldn't go is one no. Second, having to tell them the truth, and you say, okay, I'll call them later. And they say, nope, call them now. We'll wait. So you pick up the phone, and you call your friend, and you say, "Uh, I tricked my parents. When one said no, I got the other to say yes, and now I can't go anywhere tonight or tomorrow night or next week (laughs) or this month. Got the picture? Parents, if you let your children divide you, you are weakening your household. You are teaching them the wrong thing. You can be caught off guard, but you can correct it immediately as soon as you know it. You should never try to divide your parents now that you're this old. When you're this tall, it's okay. It's okay for Michael Lou to do it. She's my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. She's just wide open about it. She'll ask her mother for something. She says, no, she'll go to her daddy straight out. Then she'll go to grandma to sassy. Then she'll go to papa. She'll do it all of a sudden in the room, and we'll just say, no, your mother tells you no. And she'll look up like, okay, next person. (laughs) Okay, that's okay to do when she's this tall. It's not okay to do when you're this tall. So knock it off. Okay? Grow up. (laughs) Parents. If your spouse has made a bad decision, implied something wrong to your child, and you're tempted to try to explain that away, shame on you. They're not old enough to hear that yet. Your answer is always, what did your mother say? What did your father say? And even if they're wrong, they're right. Thank God for my father and my mother who taught me that early. Even if they're wrong, they're right. There'll come a day when they're older, much older, 
maybe about your age. Don't want to leave you out of all this. When they'll actually sit down and say, I don't really care about that issue, but your mother, your father does. And so I'm going to be with them on that issue. When you're older, you can make your own choice. But right now, you're going to do what your mother, your father tells you. Because that's the way it works. Because later on, you know what's going to happen? Probably, most likely, you're going to have your own snotty-nosed kid. Yeah, you have to wipe the snot, too. That starts early. Right about now, some people are getting grossed out. My wife is saying, you don't have to say that. But see, right now, I'm the preacher, and she's just a faithful, loving spouse. (laughs) They're going to do to you or try to do to you what you tried to do to your parents. Some compliant children only do that once or twice. Some, like me, will try it indefinitely. And some, like me, will decide early that my parents are probably wrong. I don't know if you'll be like me, but even when I thought they were wrong, I did what they said do, basically, which is quite a shock to most people. Why? My daddy was a big, big man, a big, big father, and he loved me. And sometimes he loved me in very clear ways. (laughs) And it made it very clear to me that I should love him back in the same ways. Obey your parents is a good word because you need to obey your father as well. You're going to hear things this week about my United Methodist Church and yours. They're going to break your heart. You should pray. I don't think there's a lot of reason to pray for doctrinal unity because I believe the church is split there. Because there are different approaches to the text, they'll never arrive at the same place. But they can still be united in love if only they will. I'm not for sure they will. I'm pretty sure they won't. At least on behalf of one part of the church. So I pray that their conferencing will bring honor to God. But I fear, I fear that much of it may not. Now I want to close by telling you this. Because I think it's a problem at the general conference. I think it's a problem in our homes. I know it's a problem in our politics. And I know it's a problem the world over. And you're not going to like this, what I'm going to do now. But that's okay. Because I've been ordained. Remember I already told you that. And I'm close enough to the end where I really don't care. I mean, you know, I'm not fixing to retire. Don't get excited. But I could. It's kind of freeing. I kind of like it. This was forwarded to me by Phil Talbert. Phil is a faithful United Methodist and has been for oh so many years. And he forwarded this long email to me, and I read the whole thing. He's a surprise. I did. He told me that this morning, but I did. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to catch the heart of the introduction, and then I'm going to read what this man said. It occurred in 1996. There was a baseball convention going on where there were 4,000-plus coaches, and they were in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, you can look it up. It's real. One of the speakers listed to speak was John Scalinas. Now, John Scalinas was 78 years old, and he coached many, many years at the ending at the college level. Now he was retired. And many were looking forward to hearing him speak. He came out dressed in the style of his day to make his speech. And when he walked out to speak before this huge gathering, there's an interesting thing going on because around his neck was a real home plate base hanging by cord. So here comes this small man of many years walking out to begin his speech. And he started speaking to the to the group. Of course, they were snickering. 
You know how that works, right? I mean, here's a guy in front of thousands that he's got, um, he's got a home plate on him. Is, am I losing this? No, I'm just getting louder myself, huh? Okay. So there he is standing in front of them, making his speech. You never know he had a home plate hanging around his neck. You know, that thing's heavy. It's heavy and it's hanging by cord. He goes on and on with his speech and, he, and they're beginning to wonder, what is the home plate deal? What's he going to do? What, what is the matter with this goofy little man? Has he lost it? Then finally, toward the end, he said this. You're probably all wondering why I'm wearing home plate around my neck. Or maybe you think I escaped from Camarillo State Hospital, he said, his voice growing irascible. I laughed along with the others, knowing the possibility. Uh, no, he continued, I may be old, but I'm not crazy. The reason I stand before you today is to share with you baseball people what I've learned in my life, what I've learned about home plate in my 78 years. Several hands went up when Scalinos asked how many Little League coaches were in the room. Then he asked this question, do you know how wide home plate is in Little League? After a pause, someone offered 17 inches. More question than an answer, was it for sure? That's right, he said. How about in Babe Ruth? Any Babe Ruth coaches in the house? Another long pause. How big is home plate in Babe Ruth baseball? 17 inches, came a guess from around the room. He said, that's right. Now, how many high school coaches do we have in the room? Hundreds of hands shot up as the pattern began to appear. How wide is home plate in high school baseball? 17 inches, they said, sounding more confident. You're right. He barked, and you college coaches, how wide is home plate in college? 17 inches, they said in unison. They're catching on, right? Now, in the major leagues, how wide is home plate in the major leagues? 17 inches. 17 inches, he confirmed, his voice bellowing off the walls. And what do they do with a big league pitcher who can't throw the ball over 17 inches? Pause. They send him to Pocatello, he hollered, drawing raucous laughter. Obviously, an obscure place where failed major league pitchers go to pitch in minor league, right? What do they do is this. They don't say, oh, that's okay, Jimmy, you can't hit a 17-inch target. We'll make it 18 inches or 19 inches. We'll make it 20 inches so you have a better chance of hitting it. If you can't hit that, let us know so we can make it wider still, say 25 inches. Then there was a pause. And then he said, coaches, what do we do when our best player shows up late to practice, when our team rules forbid facial hair and a guy shows up unshaven? What if he gets caught drinking? Do we hold him accountable or do we change the rules to fit him? Do we widen home plate? The chuckles gradually faded as 4,000 coaches grew quiet. The fog lifted as the old coach's message began to unfold. He turned the plate toward himself and using a sharpie began to draw something. When he turned it toward the crowd, pointed up, a house was revealed, complete with a freshly drawn door with two windows. This is the problem in our homes today, with our marriages, with the way we parent our kids, with our discipline. We don't teach accountability to our kids, and there is no consequence for failing to meet standards. We widen the plate. He paused and he said, to the point at the top of the house, he added a small American flag. This is the problem in our schools today. The quality of our education is going downhill fast and teachers have been stripped of the tools they need to be successful and to educate and discipline our young people. 
we are allowing others to widen home plate. Where is that getting us? There was silence in the room. He replaced the flag with a cross. And this is the problem in the church where powerful people in positions of authority have taken advantage of young children only to have such an atrocity swept under the rug for years. Our church leaders are widening home plate. I was amazed. At a baseball convention where I expected to learn something about curveballs and bunting and how to run better practices, I had learned something far more valuable from an old man with a home plate strung around his neck. I had learned something about life, about myself, about my own weaknesses, and about my responsibilities as a leader. I had to hold myself and others accountable to that which I knew to be right, lest our families, our faith, and our society continue down an undesirable path. If I am lucky, Coach Scalinas concluded, you will remember one thing from this old, old coach today. It is this. If we fail to hold ourselves to a higher standard, a standard of what we know to be right, if we fail to hold our spouses and our children to the same standards, if we are unwilling or unable to provide a consequence when they do not meet the standard, and if our schools and churches and our governments fail to hold themselves accountable to those they serve, there is but one thing to look forward to. Then the old coach held home plate in front of his chest, turned it around, and revealed its dark black backside. Dark days ahead, he said. Coach Scalinas died in 2009 at the age of 91, but not before touching the lives of hundreds of players and coaches, including mine. Meeting him at my first convention kept me returning year after year, looking for similar wisdom and inspiration from other coaches. He is the best clinic speaker that this convention has ever known because he was so much more than a baseball coach. His message was clear. Coaches, keep your players, no matter how they good they are, your own children, and most of all, keep yourself where? At 17 inches. Today, you took an oath to keep yourself at 17 inches. You promised to follow the teachings of the church. On those days when you grow so wise or your friends become so wise and you think those standards aren't important, they are. You need to keep them to the best of your ability, to the best of your understanding. I don't expect you to understand now what Brandon understands, what your grandparents understand about the face because it's not possible. You have to grow up. You'll grow up better if you listen to them. You'll grow up better as a Christian if you listen to one you want to be one with. Because there's only one true unity in the world. And that's the one you have with God. That will never fail you. He will always be there. Seeking to be united with you. Even when you're straying, he'll be there calling you back home. Even when you're confused or wondering or doubting if it's all really true. Because they're going to put that doubt in your head in the world. If you hold on to that unity with God, you can withstand any darkness in your world. If you don't, you'll be a Christian without power, without a sense of God being with you. And you might even find yourself in a corner looking someday and wondering, am I really a Christian? If you stay within the standard of giving yourself in love to others, if you stay within the standard 
of loving in a mutual, reciprocal way. Your homes will be happy. The home you'll build later on as you grow up and mature will be happy. The churches you're in will be happy. Will they always be unified? You know they will not. There will always be some who will struggle to stay within the standards and want to go a different way. And you know what? At some point, we need to let them. Because if we can't stay united, we're better off with two united families than we are with one who's fighting all the time, right? Maybe that's where our church is. I don't know. I'm not wise enough to go to general conference. But I'm wise enough to pray for them. That they might love one another while they're there. And that they might present a good face to the world. How important is that? This whole prayer of Jesus in John the Gospel of 17 has a point. It's a purposeful prayer with this purpose in mind. That the world sees unity by the way we love each other and by the way we love God. And that's what we pass on to others who don't believe. And to the extent that we're not united as congregations, as a church of Jesus Christ, then our witness becomes weaker to the world. So I encourage you, I implore you, offer anything that you need to help you remain united together. It'll happen in your youth group. At some place along the way, somebody will make somebody else mad in the youth group. And that unity will be threatened. It happens in church staffs constantly. When people love their own ministry more than they love the ministry of the whole church. It happens in congregations because they can't agree. Because they can't find mutual ground. And even when they don't agree, unfortunately, something more devastating happens. They quit loving one another because they disagree. You say, preacher, did you know this was Mother's Day? (laughs) this is a day to be happy. I'm happy with my mom. I'm going to see her as soon as I get through preaching. You should do the same. I'm going to take my daughter with me, the one I can reach, the other one's in Tyler, with my new grandbaby. I'm going to pray for that grandbaby. My wife is going with me because we're united. And we can stay that way only to the extent that we continue to love each other. After 43 years, it's still hard some days to love that woman. (laughs) She's got such an easy job. (laughs) Yes, my wife does have a voice. Thank God she doesn't have a microphone. But she's a noisy little woman when she gets going. It is likewise. And through it all, she still loved this guy of 43 years. Nothing is more important than unity. I apologize to you for the situation in our congregation now in some ways. I need to say this. You probably don't need to hear it, but that's okay. I apologize to you because of the disunity that has occurred in our midst. No, I do not feel responsible for it, but I am responsible for cleaning it up. And with God's help and the unity of God, that's exactly what will happen eventually. Until that time comes, though, I'm committed to love the people who don't feel unified with me at whatever level they are, sitting beside you this morning or sitting in some other place because I'm preaching here. That will not stop me from loving them. It will stop stop me from serving them, but it also will not deter me from what God has called us to do as a congregation. I thank you for your support for that. I want to pray for you now as we continue to celebrate this day we've had together. But I'm going to call you to prayer in the next 10 days 
General Conference starts on May the 10th. Remember it every day. Remember the thousand people who are gathered there from around the world who are making decisions that affect not only us, but the church of Jesus Christ in its entirety. Lord God, our God, we thank you, we love you, and we thank you so much for giving us these young youth. Lord, we've nurtured them since they were children, and now we have the chance to, to nurture them through their youth years, and we'll continue to nurture them as adults. For as long as they are with us, we will live sacrificially for them in important ways. We will call them to unity over and over again, and we will bear with them in the days when they struggle. For we are one with them, even as they are one with you, and we are one with you. Be one in us all, Lord. Unite us in spirit and in truth. Bind us together in the love that only you can give us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand, please, as we sing. If you want to come to the chancel rail to pray, we invite you to come. If you need to talk about your Savior, we have ears ready to listen. <laughs>